Welcome to the Save What You Love podcast. I'm your host, Mark Titus. Did you know that between the years of 1910 and 1970, African Americans lost about 90% of their farmland? And in New York State, out of 67,000 farmers, only 139 are black. Today's incredible conversation is with Olivia Watkins, the president of Black Farmer Fund. Olivia was named to Forbes Magazine's 30 Under 30 in 2020. She's an activist, she's a scholar, and she's a woman of the land. And we get into all of that in today's show. I can't wait for you to hear it. Also, if you are looking to take action for Bristol Bay, it is time to let the EPA know that they need to veto the proposed pebble mine once and for all. You can head on over to avaswild.com forward slash action to take action right now. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com forward slash action to take action. And if you're digging this podcast, consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts and writing a review in your own words. It really helps get our visibility out into the world. Thanks so much. Enjoy this incredible conversation with Olivia Watkins, and we'll see you down the trail. Olivia Watkins, welcome. Where are you coming to us from today? Thank you so much for having me today. Right now, I'm in North Carolina, right outside of Raleigh. Outstanding. Um, my my best friend from college, Terry Gilday, is uh, program director for WUNC, and uh, I'm sure you know that radio station. And I'm very proud of him, and uh, I'm hoping that you guys cross paths here one of these days. Hey, let's dive right into this. Um, you have such a an empowering and fascinating story. Can you tell us your story? How did you come into this work that you do, and where are you from? And give us give us your background. Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in actually Seattle, Washington, in the what? yeah. The Swedish hospital. Um, oh, well. I only lived there for two years. Most of my family is on the eastern seaboard and Caribbean. So uh, my parents definitely realized that having family around was important. So they moved back. And I was raised in uh, New York. Um, and I grew up in a family that was very... Um, heavy into the science field. And so a lot of my studies were focused on biology, anatomy, physiology um, in high school. And when I came to college, I thought that I had wanted to be a doctor. And (laughs) that was a very big wake-up call in terms of just how rigorous that programming was. And yeah, I didn't like most of the classes and I wanted to do classes and study things that I was really passionate about. And so I tried out a bunch of different classes and ended up really loving my plant biology classes. So 
my major was um, environmental biology. And I was really fascinated with plants and the way that they interact with the environment and the soil. Um, And for my senior research, I studied the effects on different types of agriculture on soil health. So that was kind of my first foray into farming and agriculture. And, um, and as I was leaving college, I, you know, realized that I would rather spend my time outside on farms, doing farm work with farmers than inside in a sterile laboratory, analyzing um, some of the microbiology that I was looking at. So that's when I started working on farms. And um, I had the privilege to do a lot of traveling and work on farms internationally and nationally. I worked on farms in South Korea and New Zealand, um, in Hawaii and in New York. And um, with all of those different experiences that were incredibly enriching, I realized that there was more than just the biology and environmental aspects of um, why certain people in certain parts of the country and the world were able to get access to different quality of food. And it wasn't just about the environment. There were also socioeconomic and like political um, reasons as to why. And so that's how I started getting involved into um, more organizing work and advocacy work and um, just really trying to kind of bring together those different pieces um, that, you know, ultimately dictate access. And um, in terms of how I got to the work that I currently do now, um, I met one of my co-founders at a farming conference and we were discussing how lack of access to capital can ultimately also influence, you know, what parts of our country and what communities are able to create, you know, food systems that are able to generate high quality produce um, with healthy soil um, at reasonable prices. Do you, th- that's um, fantastic, and um, I have, of course, ignited like ten other questions that I hadn't <laughs> planned on. But um, to, just to kind of hover on this beat for a moment, um, was there any particular person or event or kind of watershed moment where the light turned on for you? You know, you kind of had that discernment time between med school and and then finding your way. Um, but were there other moments along the way that kind of helped illuminate your path for you? Yeah. So I actually was in med school. It was pre-med in, in um, my undergrad. Um, but I think um, <clears throat> one of the moments for me was when I had, was, there was a stark difference uh, between working on farms where there was a strictly kind of like economic component and economic outcome versus farms 
that, and these are also two, you know, farms that are in the regenerative or sustainable agricultural space, then farms that um, had a um, social component to them. And most notably, I worked on a farm in Hawaii that was a sustainable regenerative farm. And every month we would have meetings with a grassroots community organization called Hawaii Farmers Union. And so we would gather all these different farmers in our area to come and learn from one another, break bread, and talk about some of the different challenges that we have faced. And so for me, you know, that experience of not only being a farmer, but also having a community of other farmers around me to connect with um, really was so much more fulfilling than just, you know, working on a farm and just focusing on the economic outcomes. Um, Yeah, so that was definitely that moment for me. I don't know why, but I was maybe just because it's Hawaii. I was that was resonating with me. Uh, was that on the Big Island, or was it on, uh, which island was that on? This was on Oahu. On Oahu, cool. Yeah, um, good place to be farming. I would imagine. It was great. Um, it, and yeah, it was a great place to be farming. And you know, as someone who comes from a community that um, you know, I'm not in touch with my indigenous culture. Um, it was really powerful to see a group of people that still are on the land that they, you know, had been on for centuries and were still, you know, connected to their language and their culture. And that was extremely empowering for me as someone who, you know, never had that access. Uh, yeah, I I can imagine. And, um, I've had a taste of that here recently myself. Um, my work has been, well, the last 10 years really around salmon in Bristol Bay. And just uh, about 10 days ago, um, my wife and I were able to come up and, and visit a culture camp up in uh, Igigig and uh, in a, uh, it's a small community in Bristol Bay. Um, and it had three of the traditional uh, folks, uh, elders that came from different backgrounds from the Dena'ina, the Alutic and Yupik people. And, they celebrated with food and community and song and we got to be a part of that. And it was almost overwhelming how powerful it was to see that continuity. And so I absolutely, that, that idea of being on land and continuity of people uh, resonates hugely with me as well. Um, well, I would love to get into the, the juice here. Um, you are, I've learned so much already just doing research on you and following you on social. Um, so I can't wait to dig into this stuff. But according to ProPublica, between 1910 and 1997, African-Americans lost about 90% of their farmland. And in New York State, out of 67,000 farmers, only 139 are black. That blew my mind. Can you tell us what the Black Farmer Fund is and how it addresses this disparity. Yeah, so Black Farmer Fund, we were created um, out of a conversation, as I was mentioning earlier, about lack of access to capital. And this was also around the time when um, the class action lawsuit of Pickford versus Glickman 
um, was getting a, a lot of publicity and a lot of the farmers that were receiving, um, you know, reparations from that were meeting together and getting those distributions. And, um, you know, it, it, there was an awareness that there was something that happened, right, between kind of, you know, Emancipation Proclamation and when um, formerly enslaved people were able to um, purchase land and own land and farm for themselves and make income and today. And, you know, that, that lawsuit was very monumental in providing, you know, tangible evidence to show some of the racial discrimination that has happened in financial institutions that are, uh, have been created to serve farmers. And so, um, we decided that we were going to create a financial institution that was a, a institution that, um, black farmers could trust and depend on for support for their businesses. Wow. Uh, that's a pretty big goal, uh, being a person under 30 and, um, might mention, <laughs> um, the, the little detail that, um, you were named on Forbes 2021, 30 under 30 and in the impact, uh, realm and, um, deservedly so. So could you, um, dig in a little bit more for us, what the structure is with Black Farmer Fund and, and how does it work? Is it a bank? Is it like, how does it, how does it work? How do people get involved? Yeah, so we are a 501c3 nonprofit community investment fund. And what that basically means is that we are able to not only provide access to capital, but also programming to support that capital and to support some of the, you know, community and relationship building that I had that I had mentioned earlier that I thought was so monumental to really being able to create, you know, strong resilient food systems. So we have a couple of different areas of focus. Our first is obviously investing. So we provide integrated capital, um, meaning debt and grants to farmers. Um, and we also focus on empowerment through either skill shares um, and also through opportunities for farmers and food businesses to participate in our investment allocation decisions. Um, and also just general relationship building. Um, we also are involved in a lot of organizing work. So we are members of National Black Food and Justice Alliance and Black Farmers United New York State that are some of the more major um, political organizations that are advocating for policy and legislation and gathering Black farmers and food businesses across the country. Um, and we are also part of a smaller coalition um, called the Ecosystem, where there are four other different BIPOC-led organizations where we come together to serve different parts of um, the food system of the Northeast. So, again, like the the financial piece is a is a big part of what we do, and we realize that you know financing is is just only one part of being able to make sure that as we, you know, finance and fund some of these businesses, um, that there is a network and support, uh, a network of support 
and a community of support. And we are um, allowing folks to connect and engage in business to business to business relationships and really actually focusing on developing out a, a regional local food system rather than just individually, you know, investing in people here and there. How's it going? It's going really well. Um, we started officially incorporated in 2019, um, and we received our first funding uh, in for our operations in 2020. And um, since then, we have a total of uh, five full-time staff, and we work with different contractors as well. Um, and um, we have raised... Um, approximately a million dollars in our pilot fund. Um, thank you. And um, we also have, um, you know, raised enough money in general operating support to be able to carry us for, um, you know, a long time as we continue to um, steward steward this mission. Congratulations. Uh, I'm inspired by the minute here. Um, and um, before moving on to the next uh, realm here that I've got lined up for us. Um, I want to stay with kind of where, where things were. Um, what are some examples of exploitative and extractive capital that has been the status quo for farmers and especially BIPOC farmers? Uh, you know, what, what have you, what have you been up against? What's the challenge? And then what do you see is the way forward with investment in our food providers? Yeah, so some of the challenges that there are, that a lot of organizations um, are working on are particularly in, in the policy space um, because a lot of farmers can access um, you know, funding from organizations like USDA and because there was a Pickford v. Glickman case, um, a lot of organizations are working around um, making sure that there are budget line items for farmers, um, particularly black farmers and BIPOC farmers. Um, and also um, some of the other things that we're seeing as well that are trouble that, that are um, difficult for our farmers are um, the requirements that traditional financial institutions or government um, institutions have for farmers. So for instance, um, we have farmers who have, you know, student debt, right? And so that affects people's credit scores. Um, and we have, you know, there are farmers who are undocumented and as a result are unable to get financing. Um, and we also have, um, there's a requirement with the USDA, um, some USDA funding and also some state funding in terms of eligibility where um, a farmer has to have three years of a Schedule F um, with receipts. And so a lot of our farmers, you know, don't claim farming as their main income because they are, um, they have other sources of income because of the racial wealth gap that has existed, right? So a lot of the farmers that we work with aren't coming from situations where, you know, they are getting passed down land that their grandfather had paid off um, and where they already have all of the farming equipment. And it's just a matter of, you know, continuing that legacy. Um, so a lot of the folks that we're working with are starting from scratch in many ways. And 
there are very few programs um, that exist to be able to support them um, at that stage. So our target focus is really on, um, you know, farmers who have been farming for a while and are looking to get their own farm, um, but don't have the qualifications that traditional institutions would consider them to be, you know, a, a safe bet, um, or farmers that are established and for whatever reason, they have had trouble accessing financing, um, that is reasonable. So we work with our farmers in the underwriting process and they're extremely involved in that. And when I was asking one of our farmers, like, okay, what is your ideal interest rate? They were like, honestly, anything below 12%. (laughs) So, and this is someone who has been around for a very long time. Right. But every single time he came across, you know, um, applying for financing, people were offering him 12%, right? So, um, you know, those are some of the things that we are seeing and we are basically trying to, um, you know, fill this gap that currently exists in financing, um, especially for, you know, some of the smaller farms that are instrumental um, to the communities that they serve and that they exist in, whether or not it's they're actually providing produce to their community or they're providing livelihoods to other people in that community. Um, we want to be there to, you know, fill, fill and serve that, that niche market. Um, wow. Still stunned by the 12%. Um, yeah. Wow. It's, it's insane. It's insane. And I mean, this is just not knowledge that people have nor, or, you know, on the street, mainstream American folks just don't get this kind of information. So I'm so grateful you're sharing this with us. Um, I, again, you've exploded, you know, three or four different uh, paths here that I'd love to go down. But the first one is staying on this is, um, do you see the work that you're doing with Black Farmer Fund uh, growing and how big, and I know you're, you're talking about a regional food system mm. and this is amazing. And this is something we're working on here out in Salmon Nation as well, out on the West coast. Um, but what is your vision for bringing this, these kinds of opportunities to even more folks, um, in, in your bioregion? Yeah. So we right now focus on, um, funding farmers who are folk who are working and living in New York. Um, we realized that if we were going to be doing something that has um, not been done in the particular way that we're doing it, we needed to smart start small. Mm-hmm. And so um, we needed to also start with some of the pre-existing relationships that we had. So um, my other co-founders have, um, I endearingly call them my, my elder counsel. They have been in New York for decades and we you know have been um there's a a developed trust that has happened that has allowed us to do our work very effectively and um is really kind of the basis for why we're able to do the work that we're do that we're doing and scaling up trust is something that takes a long time Mm -hmm. um and a lot of effort 
And we would only want to do that in a way that, you know, makes sense and that we're still able to maintain that trust with our community. Um, so focusing on New York in terms of funding, we're very active within the Northeast in terms of supporting, you know, other organizations. Um, and also, as I mentioned before, active nationally with supporting other organizations, um, and supporting other black farmers and organizers who are interested in creating some sort of, you know, funding vehicle, whether or not it's just grants or, or it's something else or real estate, you know, we like to collaborate with folks to be able to give them that advice. Um, in terms of Black Farmer Fund in itself, I think, you know, we would love to make as, as big of an impact as we possibly can while still being able to provide, you know, non-extractive and patient capital. So again, that takes, that definitely takes some time and that takes, you know, trust building and relationship building. Um, and, you know, sometimes as well, collaborating with other, you know, organizations that can do that work better than we can. Excellent. Excellent answer. Okay. Next thing that you tripped off in my light switch here was um, young people. Uh, I know I have friends, a lot of friends here uh, in Alaska and the Northwest who are commercial fishermen and um, mm -hmm. young men and women. And there are barriers like the ones that you mentioned, you know, there's debt, there's financial barriers, there's opportunities for BIPOC people that are not readily available mm -hmm. in, in that realm. Um, what, what's your vision for young people, for the new generation of farmers, for our food providers and how can black farmer fund really help to catalyze that? Yeah, um, I think it's been so great to see that there are so many um, young people, people my age and younger who are interested in participating in our food system. Um, and there are many great organizations that are focused on training up this next generation. So Farm School NYC focuses on training adults and, and young folks that are interested in urban farming and then farms, uh, soul fire farm as well. And those are, you know, some of the two organizations that, um, we work with and that we have farmers that come out of and, and approach us for funding. Um, but it's incredibly important. And, you know, I think you mentioned earlier the, me being on the Forbes list. I think what's been so inspiring about being on that list is, um, being able to meet other young folks like my age who are, um, you know, ambitious and creating alternative organizations or stewarding, you know, existing organizations into new directions. I think just generally there is a shift that, you know, we're seeing around um, what it, what what we value um, and how that's different from previous generations. And um, a lot of my peers are not afraid of vocalizing, you know, the, the type of world that we want to see and also taking it a step further to create organizations um, to, you know, manifest that reality. So, you know, um, in our organization, a lot of our staff is under 30 as well. Um, and, you know, that was something that was really important, um, for me personally is being able to provide opportunities for, um, young folks who, you know, really are interested in participating in the food system, um, 
So that way they feel like there are organizations out there that they can work with that align with their values um, rather than, you know, kind of settling for an organization that may not necessarily be as values aligned. It seems it's dazzling. And it seems like there is this moment. I mean, we're all aware, I think, if you're out in society at all, um, coming emerging out of this last year, you're seeing that there's a uh, dearth of people to work in the workplace. And I think, you know, what the listening that I've been doing is that there's a lot of people that are like, I don't really want to go back to what I was doing. I don't want right. to work, work for the machine of giant, the giant food system that we've created in the way that we've created it. Um, do you see some real opportunities here uh, for these, for young folks under 30 in doing things a different way on a regional, on a regional basis. And, um, does this, does this bring you hope? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think too, there is, you know, trust in some of the older generations. I mean, especially within my organization, as I mentioned, my co-founders, you know, are, you know, in, in, in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? And they have, you know, experienced so many different waves of, um, you know, social movements and waves of um, values that are important to our society. And um, they realize, especially that they're at a point of time now where they have to pass on the baton to, mm-hmm. um, you know, young folks who are willing to, you know, carry on some of the things that have worked and change some of the things that have not worked. Um, the the kind of intergenerational, um, you know, value that my organization has has really been instrumental in being able to, um, you know, lean on and, and kind of stand on the shoulders of, you know, my amazing co-founders, um, and also, um, I've been given, you know, kind of the privilege and, and the space to be able to implement um, different ways of existing right as an organization and as a you know a community investment fund right there are different ways that we are creating and existing you know new ways of operation operationalizing our values right and it's everything from like even defining what our values are all the way down to um you know our employee handbook and then some of the different policies that we're putting in place that you know, are, are updated from, you know, traditional policies. I think, um, you know, for, for us to be able to do our, our work successfully, it's been very important, um, to be able to partner with older generations as well. I'm feeling (laughs) the years as they are creeping on. I'm (laughs) entering that phase because the things you were talking about resonate with me. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, now I'm seeing, uh, TV ads and social media ads designed for the Gen X crowd, you know, <laughs> yeah. as who's slightly, you know, slightly uh, soft around the edges, and and you know, I'm thinking about that very thing you mentioned about, you know, passing the baton, about um, identifying how to um, accelerate the work that you know people that have come before me and that I'm working on right now, and it, it's a it's a humbling thing, but it's also it's I think it's really wise and it's encouraging to hear your receptivity to 
the folks that came before. Obviously, that's a that's a big deal. And and at the same time, it's also really encouraging to see the amount of young people that you are surrounding yourself with and the vigor with which you are approaching your work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to take a step back here into a little bit of place and history. Um, so I mentioned Salmon Nation. So we're, we're out here in Salmon Nation and I'm involved with a network that are attempting to do work like you're doing. And the reason we call it Salmon Nation is we are attempting to re-envision things as a nature state as opposed to just a nation state with these created squiggles on a map that we've made. So really, Salmon Nation extends from Northern California clear up to the top of Alaska, and it's it's really um, connected by all of the contiguous rivers that salmon touch. And salmon, as we know, are food and also the massive part of uh, community for the people that came before us. So um, out here in Salmon Nation, we're looking to replicate the work that you're doing and from the ground up, from the edges where people have had to be innovative and resilient to live in place away from the traditional centralized sources of power and wealth, and especially by indigenous people who persist and thrive here as they have for millennia before, you know, despite colonization. Uh, Those of us who are non-Indigenous and are looking for a way forward to live well in place here are trying to listen deeply to our Indigenous neighbors, both about the trauma they endured and the ancestral wisdom about living with and in the land that they have kept that I think gives the human race a glimmer of hope. So the true story about the formation of this country has not been told in the clear light of day. Uh, It certainly wasn't when I was growing up. This fortunately seems to be shifting. How does the work you're doing with Black Farmer Fund and some of the ancillary groups that you're uh, associated with, like Soul Fire Farm, Corbin Hill Food Project, address the disparity and injustice that has been present in this country since 1619? Yeah, so one of the most valuable partnerships that we have is with um, an organization called Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust. And this organization is a beautiful combination of a land trust that provides farmers with access to land, um, that's placing land into conservation easements, um, that's working with indigenous communities in the Northeast, and also working with other um, POC communities in the Northeast to be able to, you know, continue to steward this mission of um, protecting land, um, being able to, you know, give land back to indigenous communities and being able to help farmers access land for the purposes of, you know, growing food um, for, you know, this community. And so for us, you know, we really defer to them in terms of being able to be in solidarity with indigenous communities um, because, you know, the, the way that the food system has been created, right, was by first stealing land and then by bringing, you know, enslaved people um, to, you know, work the land um, and the practices, right, that people were forced to work have degraded, you know, the environment and, and continues to de- degradate the environment. So um, for us, it's really, a, you know, a lot about, um, deferring to, you know, our, especially our partnership with Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust, 
deferring to other indigenous communities around um, land stewardship practices and also making sure that, you know, as an organization that is looking to build out a, a network of black farmers and food businesses. Um, and if there are black farmers that are interested in purchasing land or leasing land, making sure that no displacement is happening in that process and making sure that we're not perpetuating, you know, systems of, of oppression as we're, you know, continuing to build out uh, this food system that's, that's serving our communities. We talk a lot about, <clears throat> excuse me, we talk a lot about land aggregation. Um, and uh, you were just mentioning this as part of this story. Where are we at with massive land aggregation and how that fits into our food systems and especially people of color getting involved in these food systems? Yeah, it's definitely a challenging um, topic that we are seeing and hearing our farmers experience, um, particularly because of where we're currently at in the real estate market and how people's priorities have shifted because of COVID. Um, some of our farmers who, you know, are interested in accessing uh, land to purchase for their farms are, you know, having a hard time doing so because of how insane the market is right now. And there are a lot of people who have, you know, discretionary income who are coming from urban areas with higher salaries that are, you know, able to buy out land and in, in all cash or, you know, able to outbid um, because, you know, people's priorities are shifting out of, you know, urban environments and driving up prices of, of land, which is why organizations like Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust is incredibly important because, um, being able to put conservation easements, for example, on land helps to um, the, the conservation easement essentially um, um, takes away the rights of real estate development on land. And because real estate development right now is currently what's considered the highest and best use of land, which is ridiculous. Um, yeah that drives down the market value of um, the land, making it less desirable um, because you cannot um, destroy, you know, that, that land for, um, you know, any, any real estate or uh, purposes. And that land can only be used for the sake of conservation and agriculture. Um, so, you know, that is, one way that we're seeing, you know, not only folk but also other like land trusts, you know, across the country, um, trying to do what they can to be able to um, make it harder for, you know, some of this land aggregation. Um, because I think, you know, the, 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 yeah, to, to, to reduce land aggregation, because I think, um, as well, you know, what we're seeing is that when land is, you know, continued to be aggregated into, you know, sole entities or sole individuals, um, it, you know, it continues to reduce the availability of land that individual farmers 
that drive, you know, our food system to have access to land to be able to scale up their businesses, especially with some farmers who are livestock farmers need a significantly amount, uh, a significantly higher amount of, you know, acreage for pasture, right? And being able to scale up vegetable operations as well um, to a point where people can feed regional food systems. So that's where it's currently at, at least what we're, we're experiencing and what we're seeing, you know, in, in the Northeast. But again, there are a lot of organizations that are actively working to, um, you know, make sure that land is not only protected from, um, you know, deforestation and, and developed, but also that it's being given back to indigenous communities and also being um, given to um, black farmers and, and food businesses that are going to be creating products for the benefit of BIPOC communities. Absolutely. Um, one of the founders and uh, mentors of mine, uh, founders of Salmon Nation, uh, also founded a uh, organization called Ecotrust out here in Portland, Oregon. And um, this that work has been focused on um, working with the land and uh, working with the systems in the land. For instance, if, you are, we still use wood, and um, we know now that if you clear cut an entire mountain and you clear cut it through a salmon river, you're going to destroy not only the salmon river uh, with the spawning grounds for salmon, but any, you know, any kind of stability inside of, you know, with the, the hillside. And it's not, now it's not a forest, it's a tree farm, and on and on and on down, down the line with predators and um, flora, fauna, the, the entire thing. So, um, we're looking at different ways of working with the land. So instead of a clear cut, how about taking out just a swath that would be replicating a uh, windstorm in, in the wintertime? Um, it sounds like that's precisely this vision as well um, of working with the land as opposed to uh, buying up mass of it and, and development and, um, and parceling off uh, bits to the to the highest bidder. Um, do you see this vision of the vision that you have as a a way to really um, move forward working with the land in this climate crisis that we're right smack in the middle of, or maybe the better to say at the beginning of? Yeah. Um... I don't feel like we're at the beginning of it, but I, I guess there is more to come. <laughs> um, but yeah, it definitely, you know, what we are experiencing is definitely has, has been going on for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, in thinking about, you know, if, if we're kind of turning to shifting the conversation to thinking about like climate resilience and also just conservation of, you know, our planet, I think, especially in forest spaces, it's really important for us to make sure that there are different successional stages um, and successional, um, yeah, successional stages um, in, you know, an area, um, particularly because wildlife, right, different types of wildlife depend on different types of successional stages of forest in order to um, survive and thrive more so in certain stages more than others. So especially in, you know, where I live in North Carolina, 
there are lots of monoculture of loud lolly pine. Um, and so because they're, you know, yes, there's a tree farm, right? There are trees, but it's one particular type of like micro ecosystem that a limited amount of wildlife is able to benefit from. So if we create different successional stages, um, it is essentially a, a more inclusive environment that wildlife can, can survive in, especially as their, their um, range of mo- motion becomes more limited. And especially, can you see um, a, a future where wildlife and natural systems coexist with our agricultural needs as opposed to just, you know, designating a giant area as agricultural only and we're going to, you know, monocrop it and Monsanto it and, you know, use the the things that we know are not working for sustainability at this point. Do you see a way forward where things are a little more in balance? Yeah. I mean, I'm an optimist, so I I definitely do have hope that that can exist. Um, it's it's challenging, however, because especially when thinking about the um, amount of people that are on this planet that need food, and the reality that you know scale um, is what is needed in order to be able to um, you know, feed everybody on this planet, but not just scale alone, right? It's thinking about the the political and social um, social kind of effects of how scale is created and how the wealth is aggregated um, within that system. Um, but on a smaller scale, what I have seen, you know, that successfully can combine, um, you know, nature and agriculture as seen together is agroforestry. And so with agroforestry, right, there are two different ways that it can happen where um, you either have a forest and you're converting that forest into, um, um, into a food system, or you have a cleared, you know, pasture or cleared land that you're then converting into a forest slash food system. Um, and so a lot of farmers that are, you know, traditionally, um, you know, soy, corn, and, and wheat kind of open field farmers are looking at agroforestry as a way to kind of bring in some of the forest um, components, whether or not it's by having perennials, planting more trees on their property, um, introducing riparian buffers on their property to be able to, you know, or, or even pollinator habitat habitats to be able to introduce spaces into their farms for, um, wildlife to be able to prosper. Um, and then on the other end, right, like if you have a forest, there are certain crops that work beneficially within um, a forest system, whether or not it's it's mushrooms or shade tolerant plants um, or even apiaries. But um, that one is a little bit harder to scale, right? Because it requires you to either decide that, okay, I'm only going to grow shade tolerant plants and not disturb any of the trees at all, or you have to make a decision that you're going to um, cut down X amount of trees in order to make space. So um, those are the like most, most kind of in my eyes, perfect ways that I've seen the two exist. 
it's just extremely hard to be able to to scale it and and maintain it in a way that can serve um, you know large populations of people. Yeah, uh, the tr- that is the trick, and um, mm-hmm. I think what we're finding though too is that you know we try to manage things um, for our benefit, and that oftentimes end up blowing up in our face. And, uh, I mean, you know, coming back here to, to salmon, we, uh, clear cut, we mine, we dam, we do these things for, for benefit of civilization. But then, uh, in the process, we wipe out this, this major food source. Um, it seems like the, you know, when you're really a student of the forest and of, uh, regenerative agriculture, you are looking at diversity as a natural way of life perpetuating life. And so when you're talking about this um, agroforestry, um, that seems like a complete extension of that. And um, how to scale it? Yeah, um, don't know. But know that like the monoculture way of approaching things has is doesn't seem like it's a fully sustainable way forward. Yeah, it's definitely not sustainable because we're seeing a lot of impacts in terms of soil health um, and, and erosion of our soil. Um, you know, and there are many farmers who, it, for, who, for instance, will, you know, purchase land that was previously monoculture and have to spend X amount of years building up the soil. Um, but I think, you know, the there are different ways and that's why we're really involved in, you know, advocacy as much as we can, because there are ways um, to be able to introduce more systemic change that can, you know, help to de-incentivize some of the more, um, you know, harsher ways that land is being managed and incentivize, you know, ways that um, land can be managed in a way that can help pull out. Um, those practices to be um, scaled and scaled, not necessarily, again, going back to aggregation, not necessarily scaling in, in, in the term of um, aggregation, but more so scaling in, in the terms of that there are more people who have access to be able to implement some of these um some of these different types of practices like agroforestry um, and that there are, you know, market opportunities for people to be able to participate into. So, you know, while maybe having an 100 acre agroforest farm is may not be realistic, but, you know, what would it look like if a region had 100 separate agroforest farms Right. And there was a market for them to be able to sell their product to where they are able to, you know, continue doing that type of uh, practice. Exactly. We've been talking um, about uh, things from a grassroots level, also from um, a financial level. Um, But you just mentioned some other channels politically um, and socially and otherwise. What are some of those channels that you hope to tap into to really catalyze this work? Yeah, I think for us, you know, developing relationships um, and developing networks of relationships amongst farmers is extremely important, Um, especially farmers that, you know, are existing in rural areas um, and are often isolated 
and, you know, are really near other farmers that practice similar practices like they do um, is extremely important, not only for farmers being able to share information with one another, um, but also for the purpose of developing business to business relationships with one another. And so, you know, there is, um, you know, a lot of energy that we're seeing around, um, you know, people developing cooperatives or people developing producer cooperatives or market cooperatives where there are um, either individual farmers that are um, trying to aggregate their produce together to be able to sell it at markets. Um, and, you know, that can only happen, right, if there's the, the relationships that exist. Um, so I think, you know, for us, it's really about how can we provide spaces for people to gather together um, and create the relationships themselves. What do you think about the political climate for this shift in <clears throat> food production and a way of looking at food production? Um, I mean, you, you know, it's what we hear always is a very sympathetic um uh, framework of a farmer, but a farmer is not necessarily what, you know, one in the same across the board. Um, so there certainly seems to be always a, a soft spot politically for the American farmer, but how about for a regenerative American farmer working in a non-exploitative and non-extractive sense? Yeah, the I think definitions are important and language is important because some of the language that currently exists, whether or not it's in the farm bill or other state bills that create the definitions of what does it mean to be a farmer and who does or does not, you know, have access to whatever, um, you know, sympathy, right, that's that's um, being generated um, nationally, I think is really important. And so there are a lot of groups that are working to redefine what it means to be a farmer and changing language, trying to get language change and bills around what it means to be a farmer. Um, because as we talked about earlier, right, the demographic of a farmer is drastically changing. Um, there are a lot of young folks, you know, who are interested in being involved in farming and, um, People are interested in being farm involved in farming for different reasons, right? Some are purely economic and others are interested in farming because um, because of you know social and political political reasons. And both types of farming and everything in between is extremely valuable. So um, the the language around what a farmer is, I think is um, is not um, does not clearly articulate the wide breadth of people who are interested in farming in many ways. And so that can also really hinder, you know, who can access some of the political benefits of what it means to be a farmer. Um, work to do. Yeah, for sure. Um, so early in this conversation, you mentioned you were enamored of getting out on the farm. And uh, you, you made a conscious decision that, hey, that's, that's better than, uh, for me anyway, uh, uh, than being in the lab. What does it look like for you? How, how, what's, paint us a picture. How do you, Olivia, connect with the land that you call home? Yeah, so in, in my role at Black Farmer Fund, I, I am 
really, really, um, you know, a lot of the time I spend in Black Farmer Fund is definitely around like continuing to grow and steward the organization. But definitely one of my favorite parts of my work with this organization is being able to go out and visit farmers and go help them with different tasks and projects and going to talk one-on-one with them. So for instance, a couple of weeks ago, we went to a farmer who has an apple orchard with a variety of different other fruits like plums and nectarines. And so we spent, you know, the day harvesting plums um, and touring his apple orchard. And so that for me was the most fulfilling to be able to, um, you know, go out and see many different types of farms and, and see what farming means to different people nerd out on the different technical mm-hmm. things that they're doing on their farm and, um, you know, talking about why different spacings of apple trees are more beneficial than others. Um, and that is, a, that is a way that I, you know, really connect with the land is really by connecting with other farmers and being able to see other farms and, and help out on many different pieces of land. What, what's the one spark that gets you up in the morning and keeps you going through the day? Um, I think the one spark for me is that um, I really feel like with my organization, we are working to, you know, redefine some of the more traditional definitions of what does it mean? What does risk mean in investing? Investing? What does investing mean? What does community wealth building mean? Um, you know, who is the farmer? Um, what do we value? And I really feel like the work that I'm doing is really in alignment with my values as a person. And so being able to spend most of my time, you know, doing something that, that really aligns with who I am, I think is the most motivating for me. Well, you're inspiring me, and I know you're inspiring our listeners here. Um, and uh, I'm I'm just grateful for uh, your time and your inspiration here. Um, now, before we wrap this whole affair today, um, we do a little bonus round, and it's not painful. It's kind of fun. <laughs> Use your imagination a little bit, okay? And it's all it's all fantastical. So this is you know this is never going to happen. We're just uh, pa- painting ourselves a. a a little pictures, but let's, let's just say that your house is in the path of a flooding river. So of course you get your loved ones out first, your pets, you know, uh, living beings. But in addition to them, what's the one physical thing that you would save from the flood? I have seeds in my freezer, so I would definitely take those. Absolutely. Of course. Perfect. (laughs) That's, that is a that is a novel answer. I love it. Um, okay, so let's call a little bit more of your metaphysical house here. What are the two most important things that make Olivia Olivia that you take with you? Yeah, I would definitely take my um, passion, um, and I would also take my drive. Both are quite evident. And is there anything that you would leave behind to be purged, to be rid of? Is this metaphysical or physical? Uh, You can choose either one. 
Um, I would leave my compost so that way it can be decomposed <laughs> into, the, into the floods. <laughs> Forever the farmer. That's awesome. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, okay. So um, lastly for today, uh, how can people get involved with the work you're doing and follow what you're doing? Because it's an incredible story. It's an incredible movement. And I know that there's going to be a lot of folks that want to get involved and learn more. Yeah. So our website, blackfarmerfund.org is one of the main ways we have a way that you can sign up for our newsletter um, where we post updates um, and people can also donate through our page. And we also have an Instagram, which is at black farmer fund where we um, post different um, educational pieces, um, moments from when we have site visits um, as well announcements and um, and yeah, people can also reach out to us. Our, our uh, email is on our website in terms of wanting to get further involved with our organization. Fantastic! I'm for one hoping that um, we're we're moving. I know we've got we're back into this COVIDy weirdness for a minute yeah. again, um, but I'm hoping that someday soon we'll be able to see each other physically in person. I, I would love to do a food trade at some point. Oh, wow. Yes. Br- bring you some salmon and some Dungeness crab from out here in the Northwest and, and, and get a, a little bit of all of the great uh, produce that you're working on. And yeah. hopefully we can make that happen someday down the line. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm hoping that this COVID situation passes soon as well with, um, you know, swiftness and um, yeah, I would love for that to happen. Well, let's stay in touch. And for now, uh, thank you, Olivia Watkins. Please check out her website at uh, blackfarmerfund.org and um, we'll see you down the trail. Thank you so much for having me. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.